Hello, and welcome to Conversations from the World of Allergy, a podcast produced by the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I'm your host, Dave Stukas. I'm a board-certified allergist and immunologist and serve as the social media editor for the Academy. Our podcast series will use different formats to interview thought leaders from the world of allergy and immunology. This podcast is not intended to provide any individual medical advice to our listeners. We do hope that our conversations provide evidence-based information. Any questions pertaining to one's own health should always be discussed with their personal physician. The Find an Allergist search engine on the Academy website is a useful tool to locate a listing of board-certified allergists in your area. Finally, use of this audio program is subject to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Terms of Use Agreement, which you can find at www.aaai.org. Today's edition of our Conversations from the World of Allergy podcast series is directed towards allergists, but it's actually about our patients and the general public. Our topic is advocacy, and the title is Tangible Impacts from Coordinated Efforts. And we're very pleased to welcome back Dr. Paul Williams as today's guest. Dr. Williams has been in private practice at Northwest Asthma and Allergy Center in Washington State since 1991. Dr. Williams currently serves on the board of directors for the Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology, and is the chair of the Academy's Advocacy Committee, as well as the chair of the Academy's COVID-19 task force. He's a very busy man. Over the past 30 years, Dr. Williams has made countless contributions of his expertise in practice management and medical education through his dedicated service and high-level involvement in multiple professional organizations. He last appeared on our series in episode 29 when he discussed the COVID-19 task force. And today, he joins us to provide background and updates regarding the Academy's advocacy efforts. Dr. Williams, thank you so much for taking the time to come back and welcome back to the show. Thanks for inviting me back. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this conversation. I I think this is a topic that I'm guessing a lot of our listeners don't don't know much about. So I think this will be very enlightening. And along those lines, I'd like to start with really a very basic question and one that I've actually honestly struggled with when people have asked me, um, but how would you define advocacy? Webster defines advocacy as an act or process of supporting a cause or a proposal. This very much describes what we do in the advocacy committee. We use many tools that are available to support or even initiate causes that are important to our patients, our practice, and our research. All right. And then what does advocacy mean to you personally, if I may ask? Well, Personally, I I think it means very much the same. I mean, we do what we can to try and convince other people to do what's important for our patients, our research, our our practices, and so forth. And we use a lot of tools that we can talk about. Oh, I like that. Yeah, that's good. I may steal that from you if that's okay. We do what we can to try to convince other people of important issues. (laughs) That's good. Now, um, along those lines, I'm sure many of our listeners have seen the emails or updates from the Academy regarding advocacy, but I doubt many of them know what this truly entails from the organization's standpoint. So can you offer us some background information about the origins and structure of the advocacy committee? Absolutely. I don't know how far back this goes, but for many years, um, the Quad AI has singularly funded professional lobbying efforts focused mainly on increasing federal funding for research to promote best practices in the management of allergies or asthma and immunodeficiency disorders. At the same time, we worked collaboratively with the college through the Joint Council on issues that were more related to reimbursement and regulation. So we kind of had two focuses going at the time. And about six to seven years ago, the Academy decided to grow its advocacy 
to what they say is a higher level of professionalism and engagement to better prepare in a proactive way for potential changes that would affect our specialty. And we also at that time sought a new government relations partner to do so. We ended our involvement in the Joint Council at that time and established the Advocacy Committee. This is a committee of the board, meaning that the board appoints the leadership. For the past few years, the chair and vice chair of the committee have been members of the board of directors, which facilitates communication, of course. Leadership is varied between academic leaders and practicing allergists, and the current leadership consists of two practicing allergists, both of whom have been involved in the governance of the regional, state, and local allergy societies. The remainder of the committee is made up of allergists who have special interest in advocacy or who by their positions are involved in activities that affect our specialty. For example, we have some people on the committee that actually work for the FDA. Most of the activity of the committee is done by leadership with monthly meetings of the committee as a whole. So you mentioned that as far as the academy members that are appointed by the board of directors, how long is your term as chair of the advocacy committee? Ostensibly one year, although I noticed at our recent board meeting that there was no renaming of leadership for 2021-22, so I'm not sure on that. But typically it's been one year as vice chair and one year as chair. Okay. It's funny how that sort of happens at times, right? (laughs) (laughs) I'll have to ask Giselle. (laughs) Now, um, I always envision advocacy as a bunch of folks in suits storming the Capitol to lobby for patients or legislation and things like that. But it sounds like there's really a lot more to it. Um, Prior to the COVID-19 restrictions on travel and meetings and things like that, um, how much time was actually spent meeting with elected representatives compared with other advocacy efforts? Well, prior to the pandemic, we would have several members of the committee, along with key staff members from the academy, meet with members of Congress or their staffers in Washington, D.C. in May of each year. We spent about a day and a half there doing that. On a couple of occasions, we've had additional trips to Washington, but typically it's once a year. But we're very busy in between. Um, But during that meeting with the suits, Uh, We would tend to discuss methods that we would use to approach congressional members or the health staffers to lobby for our interests. Uh, That would occur at a meeting with our consultants before the the Hill meetings would actually occur. And uh, and then we'd meet with a variety of uh, congressmen, more often the congressional staffers, their health aides uh, over the day. This year, since we weren't able to make the in-person visits, we did something unique, and that was we had a virtual advocacy day. Mm-hmm. So Quad AI members were provided templates to join the members of the board of directors, the advocacy committee, and the office of practice management. And we would send individual letters to our own congressional delegates on our current advocacy issues. Members were also encouraged to support the event with social media messaging. and the Quad AI sent out more than 700 emails to Capitol Hill and included a video message from our president, Dr. Fasano. Hmm. That's, a, that's a lot of work, uh, especially behind the scenes, as you mentioned. Well, do you remember what it was like the first time you, uh, you, you know, participated in one of these activities and you, and you went to the Capitol, met with representatives? What was that like for you? 
Well, you know, it's interesting. I also served on the Joint Council many years ago when the Academy and the college were both doing it. And so we would have annual meetings uh, on the Hill or at the Capitol during that time. So it'd been a few years since I did it, but it's interesting um, dealing with with the uh, the individual congressional staff. But we have a lot more support from our, our current consultants that I can recall in the past. So we're well prepared. We're escorted to the different offices. We were joined in the offices by uh, one of our consultants. So it was very helpful. Mm, okay. Now, you mentioned, um, you know, there's the advocacy committee has um, coalitions and involvement with other organizations and things along those lines. And there's one acronym that I see repeatedly regarding advocacy related efforts, and that's CMSS. Can you tell us what this stands for and a little bit more about this organization? Absolutely. It stands for the Council of Medical Specialty Societies. And it's actually a coalition of 45 different specialty societies, all of whom are ABMS certified specialists. And part of the mission of that, uh, of the CMSS is to provide a broad proactive platform to address and assess emerging and critical issues across the specialty societies that influence the future of healthcare and the patients we serve. So some examples include messaging to Congress and CMS on telehealth. And most recently, uh, a letter was sent supporting our osteopathic doctors colleagues after some bad press that occurred following the president's recent COVID-19 infection. Mm, okay, so this is sort of like a, is it safe to say an umbrella organization that helps coordinate efforts from other specialties or things along those lines? Yeah, I think it's probably a, an effort to, to increase our voice mm. on organized medicine. I mean, the, the primary care people have large organizations and, and um, definitely influential lobbying footprints. So this is a way to get all the specialty organizations to argue about things that relate to all of us. So mm. it just reinforces our voice on some issues that aren't allergy specific. Uh, that makes sense. It sounds like a, a strength in numbers sort of approach as well. Right. Okay. Now, what about the, the Cognitive Specialties Coalition? Uh, what is that and how does that relate to the Academy's Advocacy Committee? Well, it's primarily composed of nine what are called cognitive specialty organizations. So examples are um, rheumatology, neurology, and endocrinology and allergy. So it's the non-procedural oriented specialties. And it represents over 115,000 physicians who of course are, are extensively trained in their specialty to diagnose, treat, and manage complex chronic conditions rather than uh, perform procedures on patients. Um, and the specialties share in the high level of expert provision of the E&M services for evaluation and management. And as all, um, we're all aware, payment for EM services has tended to lag behind payment for procedures for many years and this coalition allows us to leverage a larger voice among the smaller specialties, particularly from a, um, a non-procedural viewpoint. And I think this has been very successful 
based on the AMA's re-evaluation of uh, RVUs for E&M visits that will be in effect starting next year, and CMS's recognition that reimbursement or payment for those services will increase relative to other uh, codes. I, you know, I think that's a really important point, and I'm not sure, uh, maybe I'm just naive, but, uh, you know, for a lot of our listeners as well, they may not understand that with advocacy, it, it's absolutely about our patients and uh, making sure that they have the health care that they need and, and uh, access to medications and treatments. But we also need to advocate for ourselves, uh, the changing, you know, healthcare reform and, and everything going on. Um, so it's nice to see that there are, um, you know, certain organizations designed just for that. Uh, and then, you know, along those lines, I, I keep hearing things about heart health strategies. Um, what is that and, and how does that sort of fit into the mix? Okay, so heart health strategies is a nonpartisan professional governmental relations team with whom the Academy has partnered since we split off from the Joint Council um, under the leadership of two divisions of the Board of Directors, the Practice and Policy Division and the Research and Training Division. And Heart Health has many people involved that offer expertise and talent in strategic, legislative, regulatory, and quality initiatives and reimbursement and coding issues as well. Uh, they also work with several other subspecialties, so that creates unique opportunities for coalition building, which has been crucial, crucial to the success of our range of advocacy efforts. Um, the people that are involved in heart health or employed by heart health have bipartisan legislative expertise and valuable backgrounds in health-related fields, including nursing, epidemiology, and health information management. So what they do is they provide consultation for us on legislative and regulatory issues that involve our specialty or specialty physicians in general. This consists of notifications of bills or regulations of importance, advice on how to approach or observe legislation or regulations, track such legislation, interpret the effect of such bills or regulations on our specialty, and assist in directing our advocacy approach to certain issues. So a key example is their assistance in interpreting the effects of the Medicare physician fee schedule. Every year, this comes out in about October, and we have a couple of months to comment on that. And so Heart Health reviews the physician fee schedule and suggests comments that can be made to CMS, as well as interpreting the results for our membership. So they, they develop spreadsheets where we can compare our EMM and procedure codes, reimbursement from previous years to the currently proposed year. The other thing that they do, which is interesting, is they provide us with summaries of key meetings of congressional committees and regulatory bodies so we can see what people have to say about issues that are important to us. Oh, the, wow. So uh, these are just three of, you know, dozens of uh, organizations and, um, you know, parts of the coalition. Uh, anything else? I, we're not going to go through all of them, obviously, but um, are any, any other big players involved that you think that we should know about? Well, we, we've developed coalitions with lots of other uh, people. So... I'm trying to find that information. Oh, that's okay. I didn't mean so, to catch you off guard with it. I just, yeah, and it's perfectly fine to say no. <laughs> well, I mean, no, I mean, we, we really do. We've talked about a couple of them. Other organizations that we have 
um, coordinated with or or supported include the the House of Medicine, so the American Medical Association and the uh, Council of Specialty Societies of the American College of Physicians. We have worked with, um, and we can talk about this when we, if we talk about some of the other approaches like penicillin allergy, but for example, we're, we're members on the stakeholder forum for antimicrobial resistance. We participate with the Child Asthma Leadership Coalition, uh, the Coalition to Advance Maternal Therapeutics in support of the VAMPS program, the Vaccine and Medication Pregnancy Surveillance System, uh, the Defense Health Research Consortium to support defense funding of food allergy research, and the Medical Society's Consortium on Climate and Health, to name a few. Mm, wow, that's a that's just so much involvement and so many different layers to this. And, and now that we have a bit of a bit of a better understanding of both the advocacy committee as well as just a few of its many partnerships, how on earth do you decide what issues to address and in what manner? Well. To a large extent, the priorities are initiated by the academy leadership with input from the president and the board of directors and the executive vice president. And a lot of that comes from uh, items that bubble up from our committee structure. Mm. So when individual members or, or individual committees or intersections determine that there's an issue that they think is important, then we, we um, vet that in the advocacy committee and decide how we, if we're going to approach it and how best to approach it. Okay. And all of these other coalitions that we formed or members of also have issues that are coming up that, that we deal with on a regular basis. Uh, AMA, we have a very strong relationship with their advocacy organization and often sign on to some of the efforts that they're promoting for physicians in general. You know, with with all of the work that you've done throughout your career with with various organizations and your leadership roles, what what type of time time commitment you know for you uh, goes into the advocacy committee? It sounds like a lot of work. Well, it is particularly for the chair and vice chair because we both receive uh, information at the same time. But um, on a daily basis, we get uh, information from Heart Health on regulatory issues and current uh, congressional schedules and new bills. Uh, on an intermittent basis, we get information from all of these coalition members on different issues. So it can be an hour a day sometimes, just kind of going over and determining how we want to respond to things. Okay. Well, um, we appreciate all that you do. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think I think a lot of listeners are going to say, "Wow, I had no idea that this was even happening." <laughs> sort of behind the scenes. Well, exactly. Yeah. Um, now, I'd like to talk about a few of the specific um, uh, advocacy efforts that are going on right now because I think that these are really important, and, and I'd love to hear your insight on some some of these. Um, so, so let's start with some recent developments surrounding HR two four six eight, the School Based Allergies and Asthma Management Act. What is this? Why is it important? And what's going to happen if it's passed by the Senate? Well, it's a bill that we've been working on for several years. It was first introduced, I think, a couple of Congresses ago. And finally, this year was passed by the House of Representatives. And uh, we're trying to figure out ways to convince the Senate to consider it and pass it on hopefully a consensus basis. Um, 
but basically it's a it's a bill that has no funding implications or increase so that's why we think it will be helpful but it it provides um incentives and in federal grant funding to those schools who implement management plans to help identify students with asthma and life-threatening allergies to make sure that they've developed appropriate approaches to uh, management plans to help control asthma and manage allergic emergencies. It's kind of modeled after the Academy's SAMPRO program, which is an asthma and allergy management program, school-based management program. Okay. So the goal overall is to try and reduce school absenteeism and make schools safer for our patients. So this is very definitely a patient-directed advocacy issue. Mm. And you know, say it does get passed by the Senate, which hopefully it does. What does that What does that do to something like this? How does that um, increase its prominence and and actual implementation? Well, good question, Dave. Um, not all schools get a lot of federal funds, but those that do, um, it just provides additional incentive to them for them to develop um, this process. And, and we've worked this out with the National Association of School Nurses, and they're very much motivated to, to do this if they can get the, the school district support in doing so. So hopefully this will improve that support. Mm, I hope so. Yeah, it's, it would be nice to have some nudges to help them uh, because, you know, as important as all these things are, as we all know, uh, you know, it, it takes a lot of work to actually put these things into place. Now, what about um, what type of work is being done by the advocacy committee surrounding important issues related to drug pricing and shortages? Well, at this point, it's mostly just kind of following what's going on uh, in the administration. Um, we know that the president issued four different executive orders relating to pricing of drugs. One of those directly relates to us because it allowed our patients to purchase uh, epinephrine auto injectors at greatly discounted prices because it required that the uh, organizations that participate in the 340B program uh, offer those discounts directly to the patients. But in reality, it, it doesn't practically impact our patients to a large extent because it really only referred to federally qualified health centers and rural health centers, not a lot of which you know, participate with us in patients with food allergies. So advocacy did write a letter to the administration encouraging them to consider this same process for all allergy patients, not just for federally qualified health centers and that sort of thing. And then um, most of the other executive orders related to um, demonstration projects on uh, drug importation or drug pricing that still may or may not have any effect. So we just keep an eye on those. Mm, okay. Um, you mentioned this earlier, and I'd like to hear you expand upon a little bit. Um, we know that the importance of delabeling inaccurate penicillin allergies is really gathering a lot of momentum across multiple platforms. Um, how does this relate to the Academy's advocacy efforts? Well, it all started with a position statement that was adopted by the Board, Director, Board of Directors in 2017 that affirmed that verification of patient-reported penicillin allergy testing was an important advocacy priority to improve patient outcomes, reduce healthcare expenditures, and help combat antimicrobial resistance. 
And then during David Lang's presidencies, this, this was reaffirmed when we became engaged in this stakeholder forum on antimicrobial resistance called SFAR. And that's an important ongoing outreach that amplifies our message by working with more than 100 other groups who are also working on antimicrobial stewardship and antimicrobial resistance. And this is all facilitated by the Infectious Disease Society of America. In late 2019, with the help of Heart Health and in cooperation with the IDSA and the Pew Charitable Trust, the Academy held a special hearing in Washington, D.C. on penicillin allergy. Well, that was another example of us going back to the Hill for lobbying. In early 2020, Dr. David Kahn, who was chair of the advocacy committee at the time, was able to present to the Presidential Advisory Council on Combating Antimicrobial Resistant Bacteria, it's a mouthful, in short <laughs> called PACCARB, on how implementing penicillin allergy testing can be an important and impactful effort in the antimicrobial, antimicrobial stewardship program. So we're trying to work this into this, obviously, antimicrobial stewardship. Um, and in September of this year, our advocacy committee wrote to CMS to urge that it require US hospitals to include verification of penicillin allergy as part of their mandatory antibiotic stewardship program. And uh, we participated on a National Penicillin Allergy Day mm -hmm. on September 28th by sending a letter to all members of uh, Congress's health staff to promote the penicillin allergy testing as a public health measure to combat antimicrobial resistance and share our earlier correspondence on verification. So we just keep trying to get verification of penicillin allergy and penicillin allergy testing into the minds of Congress, the administration, CMS, as well as our members by publishing articles about it in JAMA and other such publications. Mm. Yeah, you, know, you just made me think of something. You know, with penicillin allergies, uh, you know, about ten percent of the population will self-report having that. Inevitably, when you're meeting with these representatives or their staff members, uh, undoubtedly they they must somebody must have some allergic condition that they have a personal relationship to. Uh, I'm just curious, without giving away any names or anything like that, has that has that popped up when you've had these conversations? They say, "Yes, I'm so glad that you're here. This is important to me," and so on and so forth. Absolutely, and you just love it when they do say that. <laughs> But you know, some of these staffers say, "Well, yeah, I've got penicillin allergy, or my spouse, or you know, my brother, or somebody has it," and they're and they're really interested. And what we do do is leave behind materials for them. We leave behind copies of these letters, some informational sheets, copies of articles that have been published. So we really try and reinforce that. But it really is great when there's personal uh, interest in in the problem. Oh, sure. Yeah, I get a little more buy-in. You ever take any skin testing kits with you to offer some pre-allergy testing? <laughs> we haven't done that, but that might be a good idea. <laughs> um, no, the you know, hot topic right now as we record this in the middle of a, you know, a transition in, uh, well, it, it's we just finished an election in our country and... Um, you know, of course, we're still in the middle of a raging COVID-19 global pandemic, and we're seeing a lot of issues surrounding health insurance, physician reimbursement, and coverage for services such as telemedicine visits. Do you have any updates for us regarding how the um, Academy's advocacy committee is addressing some of these concerns? 
Sure. Well, the advocacy committee isn't alone in addressing a lot of these concerns. An advocacy committee within the structure of the academy is part of the Office of Practice Management. So um, they have their coding resource that helps members learn how to properly code for certain uh, reimbursement issues and also payer relations that I was involved in in the past, but it's currently run by Dick Hansinger, um, who reviews thousands of insurance company policies every year and sends hundreds of letters to insurance company medical directors on issues related to their payment policy. Um, the advocacy committee has worked with Heart Health in evaluating the physician fee schedule for E&M codes and also to encourage the administration, CMS, and private insurers on making permanent the telehealth flexibilities and reimbursements that uh, they've done during the pandemic. Uh, most recently, we urged um, them to uh, continue to offer not only those telehealth reimbursements, but audio visits that they've done during the pandemic where they're paying in uh, in parity with within person visits we encourage them to can you continue to do that as well hmm. oh that'd be fantastic oh that's great uh you know as we as we wrap things up here and this has been a wonderful update uh what advice do you have for any of our listeners who may be interested in getting more involved well if they want to get involved in advocacy uh, typically once a year the president-elect sends out you know a uh, a request for interest basically to the membership. If you want to be on a committee, let me know. This is how to do it kind of thing. Because this is a, this is a board appointed committee, it's a little bit different process. So you have to uh, either uh, send an email to advocacy at quadai.org or contact the president or president-elect uh, and and tell them, listen, I'd like to get involved. These are the skills that I could bring to the committee. Would you consider appointing me to this committee? Okay. And then uh, as far as just on a local basis, so it's great to learn about the academy and everything that they're doing and getting involved. But, you know, we all work at our own practice or institution, and we all live in our own communities. Um, any sort of grassroots efforts that you can think of right now that somebody could start to do if they want to get more involved? Well, they can certainly contact their senators to support HR 2468. That's one mm -hmm. thing they can do pretty easily and quickly. But, you know, over the, we've got a really pretty good handle about what's going on in Congress, but we don't have such a great handle of what's going on in state legislatures. And that's where a lot of what affects our patients and our practices mostly uh, where things occur. Um, and so we've tried to develop a system with the regional, state, and local allergy societies to, to get that and gather that information from memberships across the state. Now, this year, the, um, the Heart Health has actually added somebody who's going to specialize in state-level advocacy issues. So I think that will really help guide our direction. But we really rely on membership to let us know, either through their governors of the regional, state, and local societies, through the regional, state, and local society presidents, or as I mentioned, they can they can email us directly if there's issue, either at practicematters at aaai.org or advocacy at aaai.org. Okay, great. Yeah, lots of different ways that people can get involved.
Well, you know, Dr. Williams, this has been a very helpful and informative conversation, and I, I really look forward to having you back somewhat regularly to discuss uh, uh, ever-evolving advocacy initiatives. Uh, before we depart, do you have any final thoughts for our listeners? No, just thanks for asking me back, and I think it's it's been really important to let our membership know that we really are advocating for them. We're doing a lot of work on this, and it's it's not so obvious. We don't we don't advertise it quite as much, but this really has been nice to have an opportunity to let people know what we're doing. Excellent. Thank you again. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode. Please visit www.aaai.org for show notes and any pertinent links from today's conversation. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify so you can receive new episodes in the future. Thank you again for listening.